everyone, uh, my name is Len Nassifer. I wear a lot of hats, so I'm going to try to condense it really quick. But I'm a professor. I'm a professor of American Indian Studies and affiliated with the Udall Center of Public Policy at the University of Arizona. Um, I worked for a number of years in the Department of Energy, uh, working with tribes uh, a lot here in the Colorado Plateau. Um, and uh, most recently, I started an outdoor apparel media company called Natives Outdoors, and we work with indigenous artists, athletes, and media creators to do um, fun stuff in the outdoors. Uh, lately, we've been doing really dangerous stuff in the mountains, so it's been fun. Um, uh, but. What's brought me here today is just, it's been really amazing to bring this panel together with Q and um, talk about this place that we call home. Um, so just to give you a little bit of update, or a little bit of sort of the show, the run of show, um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the Colorado Plateau, what that means, um, then we'll do a quick introduction with all the panelists. I'll have the panelists introduce themselves, and then we'll go into a set of questions that we've curated uh, followed by uh, a discussion with you, the audience. Sound good? Um, so, looking at the Colorado Plateau, if we can um, flip through that really quick. There we go. So, that's part of it. Um, but the Colorado Plateau is about 130,000 uh, square miles that covers uh, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. And it's, it's been a place of human history that has human inhabitation for at least 20,000 years. Um, but an interesting thing within the Colorado Plateau is that there's always been this tension between energy development, resource extraction, and others, and the, we, the people living here as well. Um, in looking at you know, my sort of background in history and knowledge of this area is largely in the energy and natural resource realm, but one of the things that, in constant pressures that we see is uh, the development of petroleum, uranium, natural gas, and other sorts of resources that go and has supported the growth of Western cities. Um, and the other big elephant in the room is water. So 90% of the Colorado Plateau drains into the Colorado River. And um, that's constantly a tension and a point of contention in this part of the world. Um, but looking at um, you know, and the ways in which we engage with this area, I mean, recreation, hiking, biking, climbing, rafting is one of the ways in which we can see the beauty of this place. As I'm sure you all know, you can go to the Grand Canyon just a couple hours away or Vermilion Cliffs or the many things out there, but it's very scenically beautiful and it's also very uh, desolate in some ways and that gives it some of its really intense, uh, amazing beauty. Um, but looking at the public and protected lands in this area, of course you have um, the Navajo and Hopi reservations, the Wallapai reservations, um, I'm sure I'm missing a few, the Ute tribes as well. Um, but these are, these are types of uh, federal land designations known as uh, federal trust land, and then you also have things like national parks, Bureau of Land Management. Um, so there's this sort of, uh, I like to say the smorgasbord of different sorts of federal land management that occurs in the West. And one of the things that constantly comes up is what do the role of, of, of tribal lands, tribal trust lands play into this larger discussion around recreation. Um, and that's been a big part of the work that I've been doing is that you know it is different. These are sovereign lands. Um, and they just do, do have different regulations that apply to them that some of our panelists will be talking about. Um, so on our panel, um, I'm totally gonna butcher your name, but we have Angel, Angel Taddyton, um, is an ambassador for uh, women who hike, 
And it's coming from Page, Arizona. Marshall Masiespa. Uh, he's the founder of uh, Adventures for Hopi. Um, and Colleen Cooley, uh, river raft guide, um, among other things. Uh, very talented. Um, and then we have Morgan Sogren. Sogren. Um, really talented writer. We've been able to connect and work on different things um, around Bears Ears. Um, and we have Aaron Mike. Um, he's a climbing guide and tribal lands uh, coordinator for the Access Fund. And then Mr. Q himself. Um, so we'll uh, I'll go down the lit, go down the row, pass it down to Q. But we'll have each panelist do a uh, one and a half minute introduction. Good morning. Um, thanks for everybody to come out. And uh, so my name is James Q. Martin Q. Um, my grandfather and my dad have the same name as I do, so as a kid I just went by Q and that's just been kind of the thing that passed around and my great-grandfather's first name was Q. There's two stories there. One was he was uh, running Prohibition and that was his nickname. The other was he was just a rancher in Texas and his name was literally the letter Q. So he named his son James Q. Martin and I'm the third of that. Uh, legacy and I grew up here in Arizona and in Alaska and I've been here in Flagstaff for 24, 25 years. This is my home. Um, I refer to myself as a storyteller. Um, I use the mediums of photography, filmmaking, um, writing, etc. to try to bridge the intersection between athleticism and activism and um, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Hi everybody, Yate. My name is Aaron Mike. Uh, kind of an implant new here to Flagstaff. I've been here for about three years now, uh, coming from Tucson. Um, but uh, yeah, I wear a lot of hats as well. Uh, Native Lands Regional Coordinator for the Access Fund. Um, if they're climbers, you can be familiar with that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, fits <laughs> really well with this sunglasses. Uh, yeah, and also um, uh, owner of Pangea Mountain Guides in Tucson, Arizona, so I've been guiding for about eight years now. Um, I'm a rock climbing athlete for Natives Outdoors. Um, and uh, yeah, really, really happy to see this many faces show up for this conversation. Um, I mean, especially because we're so close to Four Corners area. There's a lot of, you know, cultural sensitivity, sense, culturally sensitive areas that are, that are around and present in this area. Um, yeah, thanks for coming out. Hi, I'm Morgan Sugarin. I'm a writer and a trail runner. I consider the Colorado Plateau my, my newly transplanted home. I've been here for about three years, um, but mostly living out in the landscape. So about a year spent in Bears Ears, another year spent in Grand Staircase Escalante, and a lot of last year spent in the Greater Glen Canyon and Navajo Mountain region. Um, I like to write about conservation and the connection between recreation and education and how we can work together to protect these places that we all consider home and to me home isn't a house it's learning about the land you're living upon and its future and its past um, and so I, i'm really excited to be here because i think this conversation is a big part of that awesome. um good morning yat e bene um i'm gonna introduce myself in my native language first yat e she calling kuli in the kenya ani initially Look, I don't know about this chain. What hegly does she check? What's the fun of this chamella? Ah, could I a 
Shantuado Bistot Ejdent Nasha and Kut Aue Dinet Stanishan. So that's how I identify myself and how I introduce myself when I'm speaking to uh, different audiences out there. Um, and that also uh, explains the connection I think I have to home and to these places that I'm really passionate about um, connecting to and protecting um, and also uh, sharing uh, those perspectives with you all and those stories with you all. Um, and just really thankful uh, to be here this morning and to see a lot of, uh, of you all here this morning. Thanks for coming out um, and thank you everybody on this panel as well and for Q and Len and for everybody that helped organize this and for Fire Creek as well and Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival and thank you. Good morning everybody. My name is Marshall Masaiswa. I am Pakafuma or Reed Clan from the village of Pakafuma in the Hopi Reservation. Um, so uh, I got to go back a little bit how I kind of stumbled into this world. Uh, I went to college, at, or I went to school at Fort Lewis College originally for environmental biology, but I was a product of the reservation school system. So switched to adventure education and graduated in 2014. Uh, so I came back home and reorganized the nonprofit and called it Adventures for Hopi. Um, and we are a developmental adventure education program specifically serving Hopi and Tewa youth on the reservation. Um, more recently, that uh, unfortunately was pretty hard and wasn't paying the bills, so I switched gears to uh, creating and now managing the uh, Ancestral Lands Hopi Conservation Corps. So I consider my background recreation, conservation, and preservation. Thanks. Good morning, my name's Angel Tadidid. She Angel Tarrington Ningshia, She was a fun in a stone, my description brushes chief, Twitch eating Adish Che, Kia Ani Adish Nella. I am full Navajo, I am from the Page area, and I am a, a social worker by profession, but um, I am a weekend warrior and I am an ambassador for women who hike. Awesome. Um, so, this first question will be for Q. I know this has been kind of a, uh, this put, pulling this together has been kind of the culmination of a lot of discussions we've had and ideas we've had. But Q, I just want to, um, since you reached out to me about this idea of pulling this panel together, you know, some of your thoughts and um, experiences on the Colorado Plateau and, you know, what led us to sit here today, today together. Thank you. And uh, I also just, want to back up and say thank you to Flag Mountain Film Festival, Fire Creek for donating the space and the time, and all the volunteers that make this independent festival happen. It's really an honor to have it here. And I would say that I'm a product of this town, and I'm a product of the gathering that we have. And I, to get to your question, Lynn, around the regards of the panel, I've kind of come to this realization within myself that social justice might be the, the biggest tool that we have for conservation and preservation of lands. And so when we're having these conversations, um, identifying infinity groups and also as um, a white male living in the first world, I have a lot of privilege and I want to be able to be an ally to 
my friends to communities and help continue to create communities and, and bridge divides. And so I thought it would be really cool to have this conversation with such a established and known group of folks. Um, and then I also got really, really nervous that this type of conversation should not be a non-native conversation. And I, I tried to uh, uh, leave the group, but um, I was called back in and embraced with uh, big arms and hugs. And um, originally I was gonna moderate the panel, and then I really begged Lynn to do that. Um, and so that's kind of the history of it a little bit. Like basically, to summarize that, I think social justice is our biggest tool for conservation and that having open dialogue about the diversity and especially on the Colorado Plateau and these borderlands, um, how we can find common grounds. And then, did you have a second part of that or is that a good? Um, some of your experiences recreating out here. Okay, so some of my experiences recreating out here. So as I mentioned, I'm a photographer and filmmaker. I basically dropped out of college, pursued climbing full-time, and rock climbing with a camera. Um, I somehow like started making a living that way. I worked as a commercial um, climber, essentially, uh, you know, working on like rigs and what have you, climbing cell phone towers, concerts. Eventually, Patagonia bought one of my photos in 2002, and that kind of led me into this like evolution of being an adventure photographer traveling the world, but this is my home, and this is where I recreate, and I've spent the last two plus decades in and out of these lands, and some of the things that I think are really important about that are understanding the cultural significance of these lands and, and paying attention to the ethos of the um, tribes that you're visiting and knowing that you're just a guest in these nations and they're sovereign nations. And so I will go out for weeks at a time. Well, now, well, in the Colorado Plateau, I guess the biggest set time I've ever been out is probably over a week. But I do go out on trips that are over multiple weeks. And this is just one of the most special places um, in the world. And I think like those experiences of being able to start on Navajo Nation lands, drop into the Grand Canyon, be in the Grand Canyon for a while in a national park, back out on the lands, and, and then just being able to navigate and swim through those boundaries are really important. And um, taking the time to get the prep permits, taking the time to understand what the access is, um, taking the time to maybe speak with the sheep herder before you drop into the canyon that he's um, out um, using for, you know, that he's out on the rangeland. So those are some of my experiences, Lynn. Right on, thanks, Kay. Um This next question is for Colleen and Aaron. Um, Colleen, I'll, I'll have you uh, talk first to this, but I would like to, you to talk about your experience being a native guide, a rap guide, um, and you know the opportunities, the challenges, and, and more importantly, the, where do you see that going in the next 20 years in, in your specific discipline? So thank you. Um, so I grew up 
uh, in Shanto. It's about two hours northeast of here. And we have a canyon or a wash that goes um, through that area, but it's dried up because of climate change, because of uh, we're not getting as much water or moisture these days. And so that's my experience. And also my parents would take us to Lake Powell. That's my experience with water. I didn't know how to swim until maybe within the last five to 10 years. Um, but I want to also um, acknowledge my older sister, Nikki Cooley. Some of you may know her, but she uh, was one of the first uh, Native river guides on the Colorado River. And she saw a need down there uh, for more Native guides uh, to be the interpreters, to be on these trips with the, the people that are coming from all over the world to see this place. Um, and to educate um, and bring awareness to um, our culture and our history to, and our connection to these places. Um, and so I went through a training program that she started at Northern Arizona University and um, I got hooked after that. The training happened on the San Juan River um, and I started working as a guide down there um, on the San Juan River. And um, I've been guiding there for about 10 years now and I have to say that it's definitely progressed and I've seen more of our own people, especially Navajo and Hopi uh, guides that are working on the San Juan River because that's part of our homeland. Uh, the river cuts uh, through our homeland as well. Um, I wanted to ask the people here, have any of you been on the San Juan or know where it is, if you can raise your hand? Okay, great. Um, but did you know that, um, yes, the left side is Navajo Nation land? Um, did you guys know that? No? Some people. Um, so that's where I think uh, the importance of this panel um, and the people, the people doing this work is to bring education and awareness to that. Um, I mean, and this map also shows like all the tribes, and this doesn't show all the tribes actually, just shows some of the tribes that have connections and stories to just the Grand Canyon region. Um, and then for the San Juan River, the same thing. We have, besides Navajo, we have Hopi. I mean, um, I think uh, the different Pueblo tribes probably have a connection to that place as well. Um, so I see a need uh, for the importance of our voices and our perspectives um, to these places that we call home, that we, um, our ancestors, uh, have lived there and migrated through those places um, and have their stories and left their marks through uh, the petroglyphs or pictographs and telling those stories themselves in those ways. Although we can't do that, <laughs> leaving those kind of traces on the land, we can speak and use our voice um, and tell it to you all um, and tell it to the people that are um, going on these river trips as well. And I think for um, future, I would like to see more of our people um, be the guides um, to learn from these places as well and reconnecting to these places, um, but also um, I think several people I have um, worked with um, see a vision for our own uh, native river company as well on the San Juan River. Um, so that's that would be something to work towards as well um, that I would love to see. Thank you.
Aaron, in that question to you, um, climbing on the Navajo Nation has its own fraught history and <clears throat> complications. Um, but as a as a as a Navajo guide and someone that guides primarily off of tribal land, um, can you speak to the unique challenges that are faced on Navajo Nation um, regulation, things like that sort, and where you want to see things going in the next couple decades? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so rock climbing is one of those things that has a little bit of a, a turbulent history on Navajo Nation. Um, it's a little, a lot different than a lot of other outdoor recreation that's that's going on, like river rafting and, and mountain biking and such on Navajo Nation. Um, but uh, essentially, there is a blanket ban at uh, you know for rock climbing that has been in effect since the nineteen seventies. And one of the things that we're really trying to do is is try to get that rolled back in a way that to use rock climbing as a means of not only you know, economic you know, development and um, uh, benefit for the communities, but for social well-being as well. Uh, you look at uh, statistics from 2017 that you know, $800 billion consumer spending for outdoor recreation in general, and you extract that part of climbing, what, what, what part of climbing that was, like that, that can be a really beneficial thing for communities that are, that are seeing a lot of loss in revenue from, you know, uh, loss of coal mining and such, um, but again, the the challenges are unique. Um, trying to uh, trying to put you know like for example, what happens if somebody gets hurt in a rock climbing area on the Nation? What happens? Somebody has to rescue them, right? Who's going to rescue them? We don't know. There's there's no management plan. There's no infrastructure in place for that. So a lot of lot of hurdles to, to, to come in the future here, but that's one of the biggest things that we've been working on. And one of the things that we've been you talking about outdoor rec is kind of looking at outdoor recs as a form of traditional ecological knowledge. Um, movement through landscape is something that, um, as a young child, I was taught the importance of being smart in the mountains, for example. Um, knowing how to navigate through a mountainous environment. That was one of the pieces that was integral to my identity as an Navajo person. And I think this is simply just a way in which we can engage with that, with younger folks, etc., and also make it culturally relevant. And especially with climbing, you know, looking at the ancestral Pueblon people, there is evidence of yucca root ropes being used as basically very sketchy belay devices um, to access some of these granaries. And knowing how to move through these landscapes in large part is, it's a form of power, I believe, and a form of connection to landscape that I think is really important. Um, so the, um, the other thing, so following up on um, Aaron's comment about the closure of the coal power plant, um, so the Navajo generating station in Page closed in December. Um, it was it closed early, um, and it also the the associated coal mine that supplied the coal to the power plant also closed, um, which was located near Kanta, um, Arizona. And for the Navajo Nation, that represents an impact of, I believe, about 40 to 50 percent loss in revenue for the tribe. And for the Hopi tribe, it's close to 80. Um, and these are massive impacts to the tribal governments, to the native peoples, to the people there, the services that they provide. Um, and Angel, uh, this question's for you. In light of NGS closing down, um, one of the questions that's come up is how do you envision outdoor recreation sort of supporting a transition or basically potentially filling that gap in your own community? Is that a possibility? And if so, what do you think that is? 
But I grew up in Pape, so NGS was like the big place. That's where everyone worked. That's where my husband worked. My brothers, my dad worked there, you know. So it was a big part of just sustaining not only Page, the border town, but all the surrounding areas. Even like the reservation teams would come to NGS and say, will you fund our basketball tournament? You know, like all these different things. So with that being gone, um, everyone got dispersed because NGS is part of SRP. So we got dispersed down to the valley to the different SRP plants down there. So right now, I feel like um, being a long-term resident of Page, um, it actually gives us kind of like this open door to like step through it and actually um, create our own outdoors, create our own economic revenue. Um, so we have a lot of the Antelope Canyon tours, there's more than just Antelope Canyon. Um, there's many of them. And with this shutdown, I feel like I see a, kind of a ramp up of, oh, so now we have to do this on our own. And let's get a better advertisement. Let's get better you know, tour guides, or actually even more tour guides since there's no longer NGS to provide that. Um, the job, you know? So I feel like it's a good thing for Navajo Nation that, not a good thing, but more of an opportunity that we get to sustain ourselves and that we get to use what we know so well. We know our land and we know it's beautiful and we get so much pride and um, wholeness from it that we can share that, you know, and we get to also be able to provide for our families doing so. So I feel like it is, it leaves like an opportunity for us. Um, like Erin was saying though, the infrastructure is kind of not there yet. So I could see it being like a hard long road, but you know, if anything that, um, that just gives us more strength as a, a tribe to try to do something like that. Um, Marshall, uh, your work at Adventures for Hopi really provided opportunities for many cases, first-time experiences doing outdoors activities. Um, and then also your work with um, the uh, Ancestral Lands Program also provides a way in which um, Native youth can um, give back to their landscape and take care of the places that they care about. Can you talk about um, what it was like starting a, a nonprofit and, and going down this road of providing outdoor access within Hopi, and um, more importantly, what do you what do you envision for the next 20 years, and where, where do you see that work going? Um, so I want to kind of backtrack just a little bit. Um, so uh, when I was going to school for my environmental biology degree, my sister's the one that really pushed me into that realm, and um, I dropped out for about half a year. I didn't tell her, and then I came back, and I uh, kind of <laughs> went through this crazy process of enrolling in adventure education, and I did not tell my parents or my sister because I knew they wouldn't react positively to that. And of course they didn't. It was a big, like, what are you doing with your life? Like, why are you wasting your money, your time in school? It's like, no, mom, this is something I want to do. Um, but also on the back end, what was happening was also realizing, you know, the big uh, economic impact, but more importantly, a lot of the social benefits that recreation could have specifically for our Native American youth and young adults. 
Um, so taking a lot of what we call experiential education, but putting it in more of a um, kind of Hopi lens or a Hopi mindset, we interact with the land every day. So we can use that kind of concept and integrate a lot of our um, learnings into that environment and our young adults accept that learning process a lot easier. Um, so move back home with really big kind of ideals like, oh, we're going to start this whole adventure recreation company and was offering free classes and, you know, my advertising was, you know, somebody hanging off a rock or, you know, really high kind of exposure um, activities and uh, I had a hard time filling seats, filling boats, filling harnesses within the first couple of years because of the way that I was advertising. Um, so the big thing that um, uh, I started to recognize at that point is recreation is very much um, kind of a a first world mindset, right? So once you get your immediate needs taken care of, you've got your housing, you've got your uh, stable job, you've got um, you know something to eat, and then recreation is, once you get all that stuff secured, then you can start thinking about having fun in the landscape. Um, so we really have to start looking at it at a different lens, like how do we uh, kind of look at, and not necessarily market, but how do we change the program as more of a social benefit to help take care of a lot of those um, you know, housing, well, not necessarily housing needs, but um, uh, like what are they eating? Are, are they taken care of before we take them out onto the land to, you know, maximize their learning from that experience? Um, so uh, the part of the, um, the challenge of starting recreation and introducing the idea of recreation to Native American communities is that we're trying to tackle a lot of social, socioeconomic issues at home. Recreation is on the very you know, bottom of the pile right now. So once we talk, tackle the top of the pile, we can start looking at what a viable recreation economy can look for, uh, specifically the Hopi Reservation. Um, but there's no reason why we can't meld those two ideas and kind of um, bring them kind of forward together. Uh, so starting the uh, program on Hopi was really difficult, but luckily we've got some really powerful um, nonprofit organizations. So we've got Director Lillian Hill and a Hopeable Marcus in the back with Hopi Dead Scroll Permaculture. Uh, we have a really strong support networks of nonprofits that exist on Hopi to kind of elevate programs like Adventures for Hopi and Ancestral Lands. Um, so it's changed quite a bit now. Um, uh, part of the changing of recreation to economic benefit is uh, I feel youth and young adults, we provide them um, a little bit of pay, we provide them education awards, and I'm really integrating a lot of the recreation stuff. Um, so being able to go out on the San Juan or you know the Dirty Devil or the Escalante, but integrating work and learning into that as well. So not just recreation, but being out on the landscape, interacting with the landscape in a positive way. Um, so what I'm seeing in the future, uh, again, uh, re-envisioning envisioning the recreation economy. Um, I'm not a big fan of what the Western concept is doing right now, but in the future I'm seeing uh, the Hopi tribe very much going in that direction at some point, but it's going to be a very different concept and a different idea of what we see as the modern form of recreation today. You. Thank you. Um, this next question is for Morgan. Um, we were uh, kind of figuring out how should we phrase this question, and we had a long discussion beforehand. Um, so maybe we can continue from that point. But you know, this this idea of what does respectful visitation look like, and the fact that you know, if we look at the landscapes, of course, there's lines on the map for where federal lands start, tribal lands start, and like there have, there's considerations for each of those. But if you look at the landscape, the plants, the animals don't really care in the same way. And, you know, as people, we have to be aware of those things and also, um, yeah, maybe speak about some of your experiences about being out in these places. 
That's a great way to start this. Yeah. Um, so I have spent um, a year, more time, but essentially a year devoted to Bears Ears and a year devoted to Grand Staircase Escalante, writing hiking guidebooks and various stories, all focused on educating the public um, at a deeper level, what's at stake, but also like connecting it to their potential trip or recreation there. And to do that, rather than just like go sometimes or do some research, I just I moved myself to these places. And so to understand what was going on with the new boundaries of a place like Bears Ears or Grand Staircase Escalante, you know, being within the landscape helped me understand that. And, um, you know, obviously there were tons of looking at maps and negotiating different terrain. Um, but to understand both landscapes, it, it dawned on me, you know, I'm looking at this whole stretch of land that's not in Bears Ears and it's not in Grand Staircase. And yet to the naked eye, it's all part of the same landscape. And that those places in between are the Navajo Nation and um, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. Um, and so last year I, I brought on myself, I'm like, wow, like this is the neighboring terrain to the areas I've been fo so focused on um, helping educate people and protecting, and yet I know so little about what's connected to them. Um, and so I started spending more time hiking, um, especially along like Glen Canyon and Navajo Mountain. Um, and usually when I bring that up to people, the question is, you're allowed to do that? Um, and so we were talking, um, you know, and I think it's a good question whether you're in Bears Ears or Grand Staircase or on the Navajo Nation. There's a lot of question now of like, are you allowed to hike here? Or like, if it's not in Bears Ears, can we still go there? Um, and I think more than ever, it's important for the public to stay informed and to look at maps and, um, you know, not just rely on GPS, but take the information from good guidebooks and, and maps and talk to management teams and to tribal members who have been in the area for a long time. Um, you know, it's not just a simple, you know, there's certain hikes you can go to and just park at the trailhead and go, but if you really want to experience this landscape that's your backyard, um, it's really a benefit to read up on it and um, not be afraid to go to places, but to just do some homework, you know, whether that's calling a permit office on the Navajo Reservation and, and asking, you know, what you need to go there and what's allowed. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, so we'll next open this to questions from the audience. Um, so you can feel free to yell them. Um, and just be sure to direct your question to one person or multiple. Oh, um, I'll just yell. I have a question for the guys actually when you talk about um, outdoor recreation is um, an economic transition from communities. If you have any experience or talk with folks in other countries, especially indigenous communities in other countries who've done something similar. So like in the tropics, there's a lot of places where they've also been working on that same idea of like training local guides and stuff. What's the question? Yeah, I mean, yeah. definitely there are a lot of, uh, I mean. What's the question? Uh, the, question. Uh, the question was if there's any collaboration with uh, different uh, states or other countries and whether or not we've, uh, you know, kind of reached out and used those as examples for direction to go. Um, yeah, I mean, not, not, I guess not directly, but there's so many examples of uh, other uh, nations that, one of the biggest things is the sustainability in my mind, right? So, like, if you're trying to bring in economic benefit, for, it has to be owned within the community. It has to be something that comes from within. So, bringing in, for example, 
say we had a bunch of guides come in to guide on Navajo Nation, if we got, if we got, you know, somehow a permit or, or ability to climb on Navajo Nation, that that wouldn't be, in my mind, sustainable. Like it would be bringing in people from the outside to not really owning that. Uh, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, not directly, but there there's so many examples of that out there. Yeah. Colleen can answer too. I'm not sure I quite understand. So what you're asking. In, in <laughs> other countries, there are, are places, I think, where they've done um, efforts to train guides from within communities in order to create sort of economic development also in response to transitioning away from fossil fuels. I've been thinking about the topic in a way from what I was just wondering if, uh, if any of that has informed the thoughts about using outdoor recreation as an economic development strategy. Here. Yeah, here. Uh, I can I can put a plug in. So one of the things that I've been working, the Organization of American States, um, is putting together a thing called the Indigenous Forum of the Americas, and, and it's a it's the uh, sorry the, the Organization of American States. I'm helping them put together a they calling it the Indigenous Tourism Tourism Forum of the Americas. But their idea is bringing Indigenous people from South Central and North America together to talk about these things and create that cross collaboration. Um, and you know there are examples in places like Peru and Bolivia and other places where there's that's occurred. Mexico is another good example. Um, but that that dialogue has not yet happened, but it's going to be happening next month. Um, and so that's been really cool to see. Um, one of the things that I focus on at the University of Arizona is looking at we use this this framework called Native Nation Building Theory, um, but basically looking at how do we support Native nations and basically rebuilding. Um, our identities as nations and, and as nation states and a big component of that is capacity building and internal capacity building and ways to create tracks and um, it basically institutionalized knowledge that otherwise has not been what we've lost in our community or don't have currently and so one of the things that we've looked at at Natives Outdoors and is, is looking at how do we create these pipelines for capacity for things like climbing guides for um, you know, skiing guides. Um, I just kind of had my mind blown the other day. I went to um, Sunrise Ski Park and, you know, four of the ten ski patrollers are native from the community. Um, and I was just thinking, yeah, like, yeah, tribal ski patrol, like, that's indigenous futurism right there. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, but it's, it's also just normalizing these activities and, like, creating the opportunities so that if someone wants to go down that path, they have the opportunity and they can make it happen. And often what I've seen occur is, you know, it comes down to, I think to Marshall's point, is that, you know, sometimes this is just not a priority. In many Native communities, there's so many much, there's so many higher priorities other than recreation that those do need to be addressed. Um, but the other is that I think within our own communities, as I've seen, for example, um, some comments about some of the things Aaron and I do as things white people do. Um, and I always feel like, well, we're doing it, so, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of an asterisk on that. But we have to indigenize these sports. We have to make these narratives our own. And, like, part of that's creating media and stories that we own that come from our communities. And, and at the end of the day is serving those, our communities. And that's kind of where, you know, there's a lot of different pieces and different people kind of working towards that. And so multifaceted, for sure. Uh, just kind of a spin off of that, two questions, but 
with it being the goal to have these things internal, you know, in your communities, how do the rest of us help? If you guys are wanting the native raft guide company, that sounds awesome. Uh, awesome. I know a lot of guides that would love to help, but you know, how can we all help you guys in, in these visions? And then just the other part of the question is like, what do the, the older generation think about opening up, you know, these things? Because I think you guys are all my age, you know, younger, and uh, it's just an interesting generational switch, it seems. I think I'll start off with that. Oh. Uh, good question. Um, I was just having this conversation last night with a friend. Um, and I think to have a native-owned company, it takes a lot of, I think some people up here addressed it as the infrastructure, but also uh, the funding. I mean, that's an issue for all organizations, universities, projects, right? So the funding and investment, I think, um, is needed. I think um, if we want Navajo Nation to have a river company, we need to uh, have the support also from those communities in that area, or even from our tribal government uh, to see this as an opportunity uh, that's a positive opportunity for people. I think uh, Angel addressed it as an economic opportunity for jobs as well, for our people to sustain ourselves. Um, and good question on how the older, uh, our, maybe our parents or grandparents think about uh, what we're doing. Um, I think everybody uh, comes from a different experience. I know for myself, um, I grew up um, a little bit more traditional. Um, although I <laughs> kind of got in trouble a few times where I went to a place where I wasn't supposed to go, but I didn't know until after the fact. Um, so now when I'm on the river, we have, you know, the ancestral sites and these places that are sacred um, to us and that have their own stories to it. Um, and I talk about it, but I don't go into those places. I can talk about it and stand from afar or offer, you know, what I do is offer corn pollen. I carry that with me um, on all my trips. And so just being mindful, um, I think that goes into the topic that were, the topic of this panel was um, ethical recreation on tribal lands. Um, so I think just being respectful in these places is another thing to think about uh, when you're visiting these places. Um, so I think for the older generation, they might not quite understand what we're trying to do, um, but I think communicating to them, you know, the importance of having more of our Native people in these places and as interpreters um, is very much needed. Otherwise, they're just going to be destroyed and they're not going to be told from our um, stories and experiences. It's going to be told from what maybe you've heard from somebody else. Um, so that's what I can say. I don't know if anybody else has. Yeah, um, so that, that's uh, a good question. So, um, as Colleen said again, uh, the funding is a big issue. Uh, there's those of us that are within the community, but we're doing a lot of different other things. So, um, I guess the big one for me is the recreation communities, especially here in the Southwest. Everybody's pretty well connected, right? 
So uh, we all know the river guides or um, people kind of talk among one another. It's a pretty tight, close-knit close community. Uh, but it's important to recognize that um, when you're being told not to go someplace or not to, if you know there's a climbing ban on the reservation, it's important that our allies within the community be able to try and enforce that among themselves and talk among themselves. Um, so going back to the second question, I get in trouble with older people all the time. And you know, that's what I'm doing within my community to try and um, figuring out how we're going to solve a lot of these much bigger issues. But when we have folks from uh, that are not from the community coming and recreating on tribal lands, it sets us back because then we have a lot of the old people that are going to start saying, no, shut it down. We're not going to deal with that. And it's creating more problems for folks that are like in our positions that are trying to create new opportunities on tribal lands. So uh, with the uh, recreation community that we have, it's really important to try and um, kind of not only uphold you know our laws and specifically on tribal lands, but hold each other accountable as well. Um, so we're facing a lot of the same issues there on Hopi, uh, Coal Mine Canyon and Blue Canyon. Uh, when I'm trying to think of uh, long-term strategy and thinking about what assets that we might have, uh, I'm constantly finding gear, I'm finding equipment, I'm finding uh, evidence of people being out there in the landscape. And I'm, as far as I know, the only person that has those skills to do that. Um, so, you know, if the, the rangers or the Hopi tribe or somebody finds out about that, or more specifically, like Len was saying, if there's an accident that happens on the reservation community, that's going to set us back years. Um, so again, holding each other accountable. Yeah, and I guess I'll just, uh, I'll, oh, sorry. No, go. I just want, uh, yeah, I think these guys really hit the nail on the head um, with that. I think one of the one of the biggest ways people from the outside can be an ally to to these directions that we're going with outdoor recreation is to let it grow internally and kind of be hands off. You know, there's you know it kind of brings you this to question like the ethos of you know Western conquering of lands and you know sending something really hard or conquering a peak or something when it actually should be different from that. If, I mean. So letting things grow organically and respecting tribal sovereignty is like one of the biggest ways we can be allies. Like everybody can be an ally. And uh, it's it's funny that you mentioned the uh, the older generation thing. Uh, so I worked on a, a you know, there was a Bears Ears map up here, but I, I worked pretty pretty heavily on uh, the Bears Ears National Monument leading up to designation. That was one of the biggest internal hurdles that we had was bringing the older generation up to speed on what sustainable rock climbing practices are now. Um, you know, there's an opinion of, of rock climbing where it's essentially, you know, driving pitons and destroying, you know, pristine sandstone. Uh, but, you know, trying to bring them up to speed with removable protection and how infrastructure and, you know, management plans can really mitigate a lot of that stuff. I see the I just wanted to add too that um, you're, how you were saying, how do we help, you know, like how do we become an ally to that? when you're hearing up here that it is really like, well, it really is our, our nations that really need to build this first, but still you have the question of, how do I help them, you know? And um, I'm an ambassador for Women Who Hike. Women Who Hike obviously is not a Navajo-run like organization, but the fact that I was invited to be part of that group, and then I do my hikes in the page area, and so that just creates like a whole, that, that's allyship right there. You know, that was including a tribal person 
to share what she has, you know? And in that sense, it even it falls into your second question of what does the older generation think about that? Um, when I do my hikes up in Page, um, it's all on tribal land. It's someone's, um, you know, grazing permit that I'm going out on, you know? And so I go with a group of ladies, um, you know, half of them maybe native, half of them not, you know, just anyone that wants to go on a hike with me. But we go to their house. We take um, a thank you basket for letting us come on their house, their land, their grazing rights. And with that, they see that, oh, they want, you know, it's not, we're trying to conquer this thing. It's more like, oh, we're trying to share this together. You know, so when you do include like any basic thing, like any type of group, a panel, anytime you get one of us on there, that's an allyship and I feel like we're actually doing that way better now than we ever have. Can I do a quick house kind uh, of, Allison, we've talked about this panel ending a little later and making a transition to the film festival. Can you tell us what our time parameters are here so we can all be on point and let the audience know how we're going to transition to the next session? Eight more minutes and then we'll close. And then just to make that really clear to the audience, we're gonna just, those of you that are here for the session that's starting at 12, it's gonna start about 15 minutes later. So we're gonna wrap up the panel and then those that wanna stay for the films can and we'll make a little transition time. But I just wanna check in with everybody and apologize if um, you're here for the session and, and sorry for the um, late start. Take another question. Uh, right back here. Um, I've heard of opportunities for people to take horseback rides on the Navajo Nation. It's not my form of recreation, but it certainly could be for many people. I'm wondering if any of you are working with that or know of those opportunities. I've fallen off of too many horses. <laughs> What was the question? Exactly. Um, horseback riding on the reservation on the Navajo Nation. So I haven't personally done it, but I know of friends who have hired um, local guides and with pack mules to haul their um, gear, like like camping gear and food into certain areas. Um, and again, that's another great way to support these local communities. And there's a long-standing tradition of um, Native guides helping, you know, back in the early 1900s, lots of tourists went out actually to Rainbow Bridge that way. Um, and so that's also continuing that it's helping the future and this, this new wave of recreation out there um, that stems from a very deeply rooted um, history of um, allies in, this, in the Southwest. Um, so it's a great way. I mean, you, if you're not into horses, there are local guides who can hook in with you. You can carry your own backpack. Yeah, I flunked out a rodeo pretty early on in life, so uh, uh, take another question. Um, so there's kind of two things that I'm trying to juxtapose and figure out how we manage. One is um, something that you guys were talking about earlier. There are these higher level considerations for tribal lands a lot of times, like housing and electricity and access to water. So obviously, uh, you know, outdoor recreation seems like it comes second tier to that. And if you guys want to be 
um, spearheading initiatives and that at the same time as you're taking care of these higher level things, it's kind of like some outside support would be amazing, right? But at the same time, based on conversations Len and Aaron and I have had, like, I know that it's really important for these initiatives to be spearheaded by the tribal communities themselves. So how do we balance this, like, this desire and need for outside support, but at the same time, like, making sure that outside support doesn't try and drive the issue? I'll take a stab at that. Um, what so, question? how do you balance the um, how do you balance the sort of competing interests that come from outside support from within the Navajo from outside the Navajo Nation versus the sort of internal pushes and drives to create these things? Um, so, but prior to doing the outdoor work, I worked in. Um, doing rene renewable energy deployment in native communities in the lower 48 in Alaska. And a big component of that work was um, understanding and finding champions for the work. Because so many native communities have had people come to them saying, hey, we got a deal for you. We have something for you. And there's always a level of skepticism that comes from, there's a higher threshold that pe people have to meet to, in order to understand that their motivations might be coming from a good place. But you know we have a few hundred years of missionaries and folks coming and saying very similar things. Um, so there's there's a real component there that you know, despite we don't have the we don't basically we have no choice in the bodies that we're born into, but we bear the burden of all the history that comes with that. And that's a real thing that we have to consider is that we might have good intentions, but we carry that legacy, you know, and and so. And looking at how to support Native nations, you know, finding those folks that are on the ground, in their communities, doing things like everyone on this panel, and, and supporting from behind, and letting that, um, letting them drive the ship, letting the communities drive the ship in a big way, makes those uh, things last a lot longer. And often, in, in terms of what we saw on the DOE side, when there was an internal stakeholder, like um, internal champion, projects were like 300% more likely to see, get across the finish line. Whereas if you looked at the alternative, if it was an, like, you know, an external driver, it was horrible. I mean, the, the success rates were really low. So just in terms of a very pragmatic view, that's like, if we understand that going into this, then that really can form the strategy. And just a house cleaning, we need to wrap in two minutes. Cool. Probably have one more question. One more question. <coughs> this one? Yeah, so, uh, What's the uh, potential for long-distance hiking trails to be developed or in these communities? I know there's a number of them, but has, is that part of the discussion? For right now, we're in like a giant boom of long-distance hiking, um, and I think it could be a potential great boom for trail construction and various community building through long-distance hiking. So um, on Navajo Nation, so if Navajo Nation is built of chapters, and each chapter has their own committee for um, recreation, you know, just everything that's going on in the community. And recently, they're doing um, their own trails in each um, chapter. So the thing um, that they run up against with the long distance uh, trails 
is that every chapter has to agree where that that trail runs through. And so I live in Page, the closest chapter to me is um, Kaibato. And we started a Kaibato trail. And that trail is only like a mile and a half. It just goes around like a, the chapter house, really. Um, to get that done, it took two years because it took planning, it took agendas, and it took um, the funding, you know. So there is discussion about a, a long trail. Like they even want to do like the long walk. They want to do like that trail. But that cuts through so many chapters, that, that's um, so many different chapter presidents. And then you still have the older generations that's like, no, we don't need this, you know? This, this cuts through my grazing, or this is not a good idea, it'll bring people here. It, you know, there's just so many different um, things and, and it really breaks it down because the chapters are the ones in, like, uh, in control of their own little area. So it, there is a discussion, but I feel like it'll be a, a while before that happens. Real quick on follow-up on that, Navajo Yes. Has anybody heard about Navajo Yes? So yeah, Tom Riggenbach, he worked in Shanto, that's how I got to know him. He's uh, not native, but we consider him native. <laughs> um, if you've heard of him, but look up Navajo Yes, he's been working on Navajo Nation for a very long time. He's working on some of this uh, trail building um, across the Navajo Nation and also um, has a lot of different sponsors uh, for marathons and races and hiking and getting our native uh, youth uh, out there and active and healthy. Um, so I just wanted to put a plug in for, for them as well. One more plug. I also sit on the Arizona State Committee on Trails. So if y'all haven't hear, heard, there's a 2020 Trails Conference happening next week in Cottonwood. Um, and there's a lot of stuff going on there. So check that out. Um, I'm going to take the mic here real quick and, and wrap this up. So we have a little bit of a difficult transition that needs to happen. Um, I would, well, of course, we want to thank the panelists and everybody to be here. And I just want to do a quick house. Um, so what?